You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. Before we get started on today's episode, I just want to remind everyone that my brand new book, Get Your Yoga On, is set to release September 1st. If you wanted to pre-order it, I would be so happy. This book represents a dramatic and radical paradigm shift in the teaching of yoga to truly make the practice accessible to all. So go check it out online wherever books are available. This episode is an interview and deep, rich discussion with fellow Ashtangi Wambui Njuguna Ryasin. Wambui is an amazing yoga practitioner and teacher. She was born in Nairobi, Kenya to an English-Danish mother and a Kenyan father. Wambui was, was raised in the United States, worked and lived in Chile and the United Arab Emirates. And she's now based in Helsinki, Finland, where she lives with her husband, Petri, and their two sons. Wambui's work in the yoga world sits at the intersection of feminism and gender advocacy. She encourages a mindful approach to climate change, parenting, social and racial equity. Wambui's aspiration is to co-create a culture of community where wellness spaces are accessible, inclusive, and welcoming and serve to unite all people towards collective evolution and liberation. I hope you'll enjoy this episode where we dive into the intricacies and intersections of the yoga world and the Ashtanga world, including many, many deep topics. So if you find anything triggering in this episode, I really recommend that you sit with it before immediately reacting and kind of put in your work to process what's coming up for you. Educate yourself and sit with the discomfort, just like we advise you to do in yoga practice. Hi, Wambui. Thanks so much for joining. Hi, Kino. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Nice to see you or talk with you and talk with you, I should say. (laughs) Yeah, it's really my pleasure to share this time with you. For people who don't know you, would you kind of share where you're from and how you ended up chatting with me from a summer house in Finland now? Yeah, (laughs) so um, I'm Wambui. I'm um, Kenyan-American. So I was born in Nairobi, Kenya. And then um, my family, we moved to the US when I was 10. We moved to upstate New York. And um, then I finished school, my education in the US and moved to Abu Dhabi for two and a half years where I was working as an English language teacher. And that's actually where I started Ashtanga Yoga. And then I went to India, to Goa, and practiced at Purple Valley. This was in 2009. 2009 was my Ashtanga Yoga year. So I went to Purple Valley in February. Then I went to Mysore, and it was the same year, actually, Patabi Joyce died in May. I went there in July and practiced with Saraswati for a month. And then I went in August to Finland, Helsinki, and practiced at Sharat's workshop in uh, 2009, um, Petri and I had met at Purple Valley on his workshop, and then we kind of re-met in Helsinki at Sharat's workshop. 
And by 2010, I had resigned from my job um, about six months before my contract ended, the job in Abu Dhabi, and had moved to Finland. And uh, Petri and I have been, um, now we are married and we have two small boys, six and three, and we've been um, co-teaching ever since. So I was, I started as his assistant and was uh, learning his uh, way of being in the Mysore room, teaching the healing adjustments. Um, and now we uh, co-teach together. That's really, really a lovely journey. And <laughs> I can really relate to Ashtanga bringing you together with, you know, the love of your life, you know, your partner, something similar has happened for me, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. we, the only difference, I guess, is I succeeded at bringing my Scandinavian to Miami. Yeah, no, it, it didn't quite work that way. And it's funny because I, I just thought I was going to be out of the U.S. for the contract of my, you know, I, I, I had just graduated and I had all this student debt. And so I was like, OK, let me kind of just repay this off and come right back to the U.S. So I had no idea that I was going to be uh, away from the U.S. for this long Um so <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely been uh, life took a- another twist for sure, and so it's nice to kind of be able to make the connection for the uh, North American yogis in this way for sure. <laughs> and how does it feel to be a Kenyan American living in Finland? Um, who any given day it feels different. Um, <laughs> I definitely feel like. You know, now that I've been in Finland for about a decade, the trajectory of my life has has sort of taken my life in Finland has taken on like different um, flavors uh, depending on the time. So when I first moved in 2010, for let's say about the first four years before I had the kids, um, I was very much just like, okay. Um, I'm going to be like put on my like good immigrant um, hat and learn, the, go, go to language, Finnish language classes and learn some Finnish and just kind of like perform for the Finnish norms and just like try and do like what I can try to do to get myself forward and to have a place in society. That was about the first four years and um, that was fine. And it was, it was an um, important uh, part of my journey. Um, then when I had the kids, I was just like full time in the tiny infant bubble, infant and then toddler bubble. And that just encompassed my whole identity and everything. Um, and then it wasn't until like, I guess when the first, my firstborn, who's six now, when he was three, um, I and t- talking with um, some a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who also is an Ashtangi, um, a woman of color. And she had actually come to one of our um, retreats, one of mine and Petri's retreats. And she just reached out and said, hey, it's so nice to see a woman of color in Ashtanga. How are you doing? Like, how how is it to be a woman of color in Finland? And I had to stop and think and like, wow, like it's been a while since I've thought that or that anybody has has asked me that. And it's like, how am I doing as a biracial, but definitely identify as a culturally black woman. How am I doing? Um, And that definitely has led to a whole other um, path of introspection and contemplation and now much more um, socially active um, with all the movements that have been going on. Um, And so 
it got to the point where I felt if I keep performing um, within white Finnish norms, I can't bring all of who I am. Uh, and it started to feel like I was at like a never ending cocktail party <laughs> where I'm just making like polite pleasantries to people, but leaving a huge part of who I am out of it because there's no space for it. It just doesn't fit the equation um, in a relatively homogenous society like Finland. I think Finland has this like kind of image that it's super homogenous, but actually like there's different strands of different types of folks, but, um, and this is not something that unique that is unique to Finland, but things get flattened. So if you look and be like, okay, Finland is primarily white. Yes, it is. Um, but something happens and, 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 and like the, the different cultural disparities between people from East Finland, for example, to West Finland, that all gets flattened and it's just like, okay, white Finnish society. Um, same thing, of course, uh, happened in, in the US to create this like, what does it mean to be white in the US, right? We can get into that later. So um, when my children began to get more social and I really began to, it really began to sink the level of responsibility I have um, to try to teach my children what it is to be aware of race, um, how to be compassionate and um, know how to move in a racialized world in a way that is not toxic and in a way that's not repeating harmful um, racist behaviors, um, then I really, I had to sit down with myself and be like, Wambu, you got to show up with all of who you are. It doesn't matter who you offend. It doesn't matter who misunderstands you. But I have such a big responsibility in teaching my children um, that now I'm just like, this is me. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. And it's 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 come at a risk. Like I, I I've it's taken. You know, Finland is such a place where like it, it's not easy to make friends here. Um, certainly like as an, as an adult and everything, you know, folks have their friends from childhood, they have their friends from school, you come as an adult, you come as a black woman, it's not so easy to like integrate into the society and make friends and, and, and know your place. Um, I really, really understand that. And that's something that I think many people outside of Scandinavia, particularly North Americans, might not understand because, you know, in the U.S., people, people move a lot in the U.S. Totally. and it's quite far away. So um, there's so many people that have this experience of, you know, I did the first grade through fifth grade in L.A. Yeah. and then my parents moved to Chicago and then they just pop around. But, you know, I mean, my husband's also Scandinavian and he's got these people that he's known for his entire life. And it's right. just something that yeah. it's very hard to figure out to fit into that you know totally and yes exactly you said that you that there were parts of you that you felt you had to kind of keep inside at that at that perpetual rotating cocktail party what yep. what were some of those parts that you felt you needed to keep inside and 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 that felt most risky to bring out in, in you know into the public space so that you could present this picture of, of yourself authentically and whole to you know to the world to your family to the culture that you're in i mean all my life i've had to be aware because as a black woman, 
operating in predominantly white spaces in dominant group spaces you pick up on 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 how to move about a room like you learn to censor yourself you learn to um not take up too much space i mean these are the messages that i learned like from the day i was born even in in kenya and certainly the us in school in college um you just learn um how to sort of like um I guess what is it like not ruffle too many feathers like just just how to survive essentially and it's just nothing that was explicitly said but it's just a feeling and a memory from my childhood that it is not safe and it is not okay to come with all of who you are you're either going to like um uh hurt feelings or somebody's going to get angry and speak out and like um and some days you just kind of want to like do normal things and make it through the day without having all this added emotional baggage so you just kind of learn to conform especially if if there's not like too many who look like you that 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 know what you're going through um it's it's a it's kind of like survival oh, i hear you survival and, uh, um, yeah did you experience something similar when you started practicing ashtanga because it sounds like ashtanga was a big kind of pathway for you to change your life really you know and at the yeah. same time ashtanga yoga is, is is kind of you know an exclusive form of yoga there's it's not known for being accessible or inclusive yeah. so how did you find the space to feel whole through the ashtanga practice when that wholeness might not have been mirrored back to you in the community yeah well i mean this speaks to the power and the efficacy of the practice and i think we need to rewind a little bit back like i'm used to moving in white spaces in dominant group spaces and i do also have light skin privilege you know i am biracial i do have this proximity to whiteness just from having a white mother um and so and so there are just some spaces that even if i'm not like fully like uh, it feels a little bit like tight and ooh now i have to like leave off that part it, I, I i had that kind of proximity to them that i at least knew like kind of how to move or uh, move through them so i was doing ballet as a little girl and i loved it and it was great and actually uh, back in um the us when i was 15 um that's where i started uh, my very first yoga class was when i was 15 years old in this performing arts school um but ashtanga yoga how that came um a little later on Honestly I had reached such a low point in my life um that I was ashtanga yoga just it was exactly what I needed at that time um and so I somehow just yeah it, the practice spoke to me quite profoundly and quite like um it was like powerful medicine from the very beginning and it's something that lodged into like my cells and my bones and i could feel a sense of being whole and of being well that i could kind of um a little bit minimize and um not pay too much attention to the fact that these spaces didn't have um black and brown people um and so yeah the power and the, the 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 practice of ashtanga yoga is such that um yeah i i i i'm sorry i'm not being very um i feel like i'm not being very clear but it was to the point where i was just like you know what this is something that is making me feel better 
about um, my individual um, uh, experience right now. So I'm going to keep doing it. And um, I could kind of like not be too bothered about Mm -hmm. being in a place that didn't have more people that look like me, even though I was still like, this is weird. Like, this is weird. Like, where are the black people? Like, why are there so few black people? Like from the beginning, I clocked that. Like the first time I went to Mysore, I was like, whoa. So it's always been a question in my mind. Um, but and when you say Mysore, you, you mean actually going to India, like the city of Mysore. I do, yeah. Yes, I, yes. Mysore, India, and of course in Finland. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was something that was always on my radar. But because Ashtanga Yoga was, the, the practice was just improving my life in a way that I couldn't deny, um, I kind of took it as par for the course for that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And I really understand that too. You know, I think that, that, you know, so many people come to yoga at, as like what you mentioned as low personal period in their life, they come into the practice and start practicing myself included. And yeah. you don't really know what it is you're practicing. You're just like, this yeah. feels really awesome. So you keep doing mm-hmm. it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you eat a piece of a really good pizza and then you're like, wow, this is awesome. And then, and then after you eat, they're like, oh, where did it come from? Oh, okay, let me figure out where the store is. Oh, it's over there in that neighborhood. Then you get more information, then you dive in, then you can yeah. start to unpack things. But I find it really, really interesting that you say you clocked that right from the beginning. Hey, where are the black people? Because that's something yeah. that I don't think, you know, you're average member of the dominant group would clock. They just come in and they practice and it's there. You know, I remember my first trip to Mysore was in the old Shala and there were no black people. There were no people of color. There were only Europeans and Americans. There were no Asians. There, there, no, there were no, there were literally no Asians there. There, that's not true. There was one Asian person from Singapore and Mm. everyone else was European or, um, uh, you know, from North America, Canadian, maybe there's one Canadian, mostly North American and European. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, wow, okay, this is, this was a small group of people. There were 40 people. So, you know, there's a, a thousand reasons why I say that. But then I remember at some moment in the culture of Ashtanga, when there started to be this conversation of, where are the people of color? Why aren't there more Indian people practicing Ashtanga yoga? You know, why aren't there more black people from the United States who are coming? Like all these, you know, practitioners from the United States and where, like, why aren't the people of color practicing? And then I've seen, I've seen, you know, as Ashtanga yoga has, has grown, then now it's interesting, but definitely Lots of people from Asia are now practicing. That's yeah. not something you can really see. But the, that wave of inspiration kind of, I feel it's just starting maybe to actually hit Africa. You know, there are some really great teachers of Ashtanga yoga that are, I think are on, you know, very much in the up and up and coming from Kenya, particularly, we've mm-hmm. got, we have a, a friend and colleague of ours, um, Swami, who's an amazing practitioner. Yeah, I, I know. He I has, follow him. Yeah, yeah. He's wonderful, <laughs> right? And then the Africa Yoga Project is lifting up yeah. some amazing uh, Ashtanga and Power Yoga teachers. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure when that when that dialogue kind of came in, but I, I, I can remember when it started to come in to the people who were practicing. But I find it really interesting that, that, that that's something you notice right away. You clock that right away. It's a consciousness that was there right for you like right away for you and then over time has become part of the message that you're bringing to the ashtanga yoga world and the world as a whole yeah yeah Yeah, no i mean and it's just it's just a 
I've been talking about this with 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 folks. Like, what is it about Ashtanga Yoga that makes it um, so? Because because POC, first of all, like, <laughs> and we don't really have to get into the origins of yoga here. It goes beyond the scope of our conversation. But this is definitely something that that is is worthy of invis- investigation. But if we just look, like. Um, the the yoga we practice has been in the stewardship of um, South Asians. Um, So those are POC, right? And so to think that like a practice that has been, that comes from POC and then all of a sudden it's like, well, where are the POC? I mean, this speaks into the, the, just the aspect of, of, of the cultural appropriation um, that um, the yoga industrial complex needs to, to, have certainly more nuanced conversations about. Um, And so I don't really have the answer why there's not more of us um, in Ashtanga Yoga. I certainly think now with folks like Shana coming and um, taking up the space, which is so awesome. I, I hope, I have hope that, that it might be able to shift the culture a little bit. Uh, and having said all that, we do need to, one thing I'm interested in examining much more on a more honest um, level is who, from whom the lens of yoga has been transmitted to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, We've learned the, the lineage, the system comes from, um, of course, the Joyce family and before that, Krishnamacharya, and these are all Brahmin males. Mm-hmm. And that's a very specific social location um, that's going to determine who might feel welcome in spaces and who might feel like this is not a space for me. And uh, it's something that we don't really talk about or examine, but I think we absolutely um, need to be very honest and very just clear, like, who am I learning something from? And what is the social location of this person? What is the socio-historical, the socio-cultural location of, of the community that these people belong to? Okay, Mm -hmm. this is something that now with Black Lives Matter, um, certainly becoming mainstream, white folks, folks who enjoy white privilege are really beginning to be like, oh, we are a racialized group too. And oh, there is this thing called white privilege. We need to start to make parallel histories um, about how that shows up in other parts of the world too. And so one thing I'm trying to... I guess, create a a culture is like um, how we might um, practice Ashtanga Yoga um, in a way that reduces, um, in a way that is aware of, of, of realities of folks in India that are just not Brahmin males. Mm -hmm. 
And, Do you think that um, there's a parallel maybe between, you know, the history of, 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 of yoga being seen and taught through the lens of Brahmin males being, you know, part of what you could call maybe, like, is it fair to call Brahmin males part of the dominant group within the social structure within India's past? And then is there a parallel between the dominant groups of, say, you know, Western civilization being attracted to the methodology of yoga as seen through like a co- dominant subset of society so is this you know is, is there a language that's sort of shared by members of dominant groups of society that is contained within the way that you know ashtanga yoga is taught yeah that's a great question which i don't have an answer to and and i think the main thing i would like to say is that exactly like asking these questions and beginning to draw parallels this is what we need to be doing um in order to really see like how is it that and and, and you know to say like <laughs> cognitive dissonance is my jam right now and it's not a comfortable place to be Mm-hmm. Would you unpack that and share what that means for people that might not be? It basically means like, here is Ashtanga Yoga, which changed my life in a good way. It may, has made me um, a, 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 a sane adult, let's say. And the benefits of it continue to present themselves to me. The gratitude I have for it, it's something that is very palpable in my life. And at the same time, how are the how is there a system of harm and oppression within it okay and it's not specific to ashtanga yoga alone this is mm-hmm. the world in which we live in and so mm-hmm. i don't want folks to be like oh i'm just like ragging on ashtanga yoga and this kind of thing no right. because i i it's it, i love this system it's it's given me so much and continues yeah. to i love it I, enough I, that i want to engage in it and also be critical about it because mm-hmm. uh, you know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying and I feel like people could take, take Ashtanga and, and you just, you almost use it as just an example to explain what cognitive dissonance is. You could, you could say as someone living in the United States, I could say, I love the, I love this country. I consider myself a patriot. And at the same time, I'm fully invested in, you know, dismantling systemic oppression within this country and opposing, you know, the, the, the powers that seek to perpetuate injustices. And those are not two, those are not two conflicting thoughts, although they feel like they're at odds with each other. And this is the, I feel like the narrative of dominance wants to really maintain these harsh dichotomies. You're with us or you're against us. It's exactly. all or nothing. You're either yes. a patriot or, you know, you're in the other group and you're against, you're not, you're a, you know, you're a traitor or you're either for Ashtanga or you're against Ashtanga. You know, exactly. you're going to do it every day. You're not going to do it every day. And I, and, I think. And you're for it, Ashtanga. And what does that mean for Ashtanga that you're going to be silent about things so that we kind of paint mm-hmm. this like beautiful veneer and this like, but no, we, we, we have issues because we live in a world of issues. We live in a world of intense injustice and oppression. And if mm-hmm. We want to like make ideologies and labels about it. Like, you know, of course, toxic masculinity and rape culture would show up in Ashtanga yoga as was witnessed, you know, with, with um, the stories of the sexual abuse. Of course, it would show up because it's a part of the world in which we live in. And I feel like we, we in the yoga world have been in a bubble like, oh, no, no, but it's so beautiful and we get such good benefits that how could that possibly happen here? But of mm-hmm. course, we are not in a vacuum. We are also part of these systems of, of oppression and, and, and yeah. structural injustices. Yeah. And I've even heard some people say, you know, oh, let's not 
we've talked about that enough. Like, just enough with that. No more. No, you know, no, we really haven't. Yeah. <laughs> if we talked about I, it enough, it wouldn't keep coming up. And I feel mm-hmm. like, I absolutely feel like um, maybe we've talked about it in a way that um, feels unresolved and doesn't feel... It, it, and, and here's the thing. When we are talking about trauma and these um, painful realities, it's not going to be pretty. There's not going to be like a a final ending point where we can now tie a bow, wrap it up and just like keep whistling on business as usual. This is like a, it's like the process of the practice itself. We keep kind of unpacking layers and layers of transgenerational trauma of these things that, that go back a long time. And so one thing I'm also leaning into in my practices is mourning and heartbreak and the fact that the world I dream for my children and their children's children, I'm probably not going to live to see. And yet the time I have here in my life, I can at least do my part to, to, towards that vision I have. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, it definitely makes sense. And I, I think that particularly in the world of Ashtanga yoga, what's been so problematic and hard to, you know, hard, like hard to facilitate a, a healthy, constructive dialogue around the sexual abuse committed by, you know, Patavi Joyce has been, has been all of these disparate parts without a yeah. cohesive, you know, structure to how to deal with this systemic issue, how to address it from kind of a structural perspective. There have been individual teachers that have yeah. made statements and spoke and some, some, some who are, you know, some of the main, I don't know, I, want, I don't want to say lineage holders, but there are some who are definitely considered leaders, uh, you know, senior teachers in the Ashtanga community that have yet to make any public statements or yet to yeah. say anything. And I just want to take a moment and commend you and Petri for being one of the first, um, you know, teachers to post something publicly on your website and to be really, really clear on public stance and, you know, really being on the forefront of dealing with this. So I want to just take a moment and commend you for that because there, there weren't very many you know, there weren't no. very many teachers that were that were bold enough to say go against the grain of yeah. of speaking out publicly. And, yeah, I appreciate uh, that. And lot. I want to, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And it wasn't easy. And I want to talk about that because I agree. There, there, there's just like little voices of of a healthy dissent. I will say, saying actually, hey, this is not right. Like we need to unpack that. And um, we we are kind of fumbling. You know, we've been this closed group of people, yogis talking amongst yogis, and then when we made that public statement on on the um, on the website, like we were not we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> and um, I have to say, like, I, 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 again, like, this is when I began to notice that, like, the Ashtanga culture was not healthy for, for the kind of family I'm trying to raise is when I had to choose, like, am I going to go on this retreat or workshop with Petri where there'll be lovely, perfectly nice Ashtangis, nice, peaceful, shanti environment, but all white? Or am I going to stay in Helsinki and go with my kids to POC events where my children will have a chance to play with other POC kids and begin to form these bonds that I, uh, that are so, um, uh, 
essential for for me and the way I wish to and Petri and the way we wish to parent our kids. So I had to choose. I was like, well, I'm going to stay here and just like be with with black and brown people. And so it was that quest to be in community with black and brown folks that I actually had to step away from like going to Ashtanga yoga places because they weren't there and going and meeting folks. And um just seeing the conversations that these black and brown folks were having. Many of them were activists. Many of them were involved in social justice work. And there I was like naive me, like, hey, these are really heavy topics. Would you like that I come and like teach you some yoga to like regulate your nervous system? And I got called out in a very like public way, um, humiliating way. Um, And that I would say has been also the singular most important um, thread to how I move about um, in the world now as what I aspire to be as an ethical yogi. Like I, that was such an important education for me. Um, But that's when I realized like um, I knew nothing about the the caste system and not just in India's past. It's still something that that is is in place today, deeply entrenched in place today. I knew nothing of the harsh realities of, of, of Dalit women. Like this is not something that crossed my path. And then I had to really sit and think, well, why not? And again, going back to that lens through which um, I was learning the yoga, it's through the, the dominant group, um, um, patriarchy, like dominant male group. Mm-hmm. That's going to have a real effect on how the yoga is transmitted. So when you offered to teach yoga to the uh, POC communities in Finland, were these questions that they asked you? Is this the kind of education that you're talking about when you said, you know, you got checked or, or, or what? What, what was the response when you went in with that kind of naive, as you described yourself, mm-hmm. this naive, like, ah, let's teach you some yoga to balance your nervous system. What was yeah. the educational well, response there? Yeah. So in the beginning, it was okay, because I, I, this is where I then the awareness I was beginning to really like start to think like, hey, like what, mm, this doesn't, mm, asking these questions. And I just didn't have the vocabulary or enough information to start to make connections on my own. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I met with an individual and as, he, as this individual got to know more of who I learned um, the yoga from, then the um, relationship, it was kind of like I, I started to become suspect, like, oh, okay, whoa, okay, well, actually all what you're doing, me, is against everything what I'm doing, which is like dismantling um, oppression and definitely anti-caste system. And so... And then that was like a real thing for me. Like I thought I was doing a good thing. Like this yoga has been so positive and beneficial. Like, so it was like the whole perception, a whole idea I had of myself um, as a yogi got, got turned in a mm-hmm. totally like, like 180 degrees. And I had to think like, wow, like how is it that people might, um, oh, and I remember like one lady was like, um, a POC woman was like, yeah, I would love to learn some yoga for my back, like some back therapy. And I was like, great, let's set it up. She went on to decolonizing yoga website and saw all this stuff about Patabi Joyce. And she was like, hold up, this is your teacher? Like, uh-uh. So I was like, whoa, like, okay, there's, there's, these are things we, we can no longer ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. And so when I say cognitive dissonance, I mean cognitive dissonance, Kino. Mm-hmm. Like here yeah. is the actual, like, the you cannot deny or one 
cannot deny. Let's say at least um, if Ashtanga yoga is taught in a trauma-informed way that doesn't remove the power from the student, the yoga itself works. Mm-hmm. The indigeneity, the indigenous healing of the yoga works. But what is it about these certain elements that make it that, yeah, that's mm-hmm. not a safe place for me. You know what I'm no, saying? And it, it, it absolutely does parallel bigger structures, bigger systems. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm not like, I'm not putting the blame on any one individual. Mm-hmm. I want to look at a systematic, a structural level. Mm-hmm. And then can we work to abolish them? Absolutely. Yoga. Can we use the clear mindedness we get? Can we use the open heartedness that the practice of yoga provides us for us to leverage our privilege and abolish these systems? And what is the risk? What is the risk? We have to take risk. What are we willing to give up? Mm -hmm. You know, take a look at some of the things that actually are required to ask the Vashtanga yoga practitioners. And then I think you can really easily see this has been created by some like members of a dominant, like dominant group of society. The amount of free time that you would need in order to dedicate to the practice, you know, the the rigors, the, 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 the rigorous time of day that you're asked to practice, the major lifestyle changes. These are, these are people that are going to have that disposable income, disposable free time, all of these things that, you or, know. And just like being able to go to a neighborhood and, and ask for food and being who you are, you'll get it. Like, right. yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because we, we absolutely, and I feel like it's been our kind of privilege and a little bit our naivete as non-South Asians um, where we didn't actually have to look at these on a deeper level. And now mm-hmm. this is being asked of us. And I really think mm-hmm. if we can, if we can be open, this is going to catapult um, not only our own personal spiritual, uh, spiritual evolution, but our collective evolution as well. And also like one thing I, I, I really would like to see is um, especially like amongst non-black POC and P- and black, black indigenous POC, like it would be really nice for us to be able to have like deeper conversations on how, um, sorry, I just lost that train of thought. So you can, <laughs> if you need to edit it out, that's fine. I don't <laughs> that's know. <where> okay. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. No, well, the other, the other thing in Ashtanga that I think is a discussion that needs to be had is the question of ableism. You know, totally. when we present the practice there, there, you know, as a teacher, it's, it's, I've seen that it's a very unwelcoming space for bigger bodies. You know, there's, there, and that's this something is- that it's hard to unpack and hard to present. And, you know, finding teachers that are bigger bodied teachers in Ashtanga is really difficult. Making bigger body students feel comfortable. It, you know, they need to have, we need to have more modifications, more accessibility. We need that the shame and the blame needs to be taken yeah. out of modifications. And there was this, you know, ethos Absolutely. and this really high standard that kind of manufactured this false equivalence between doing really advanced poses fitting into this particular physique and then you kind of fit into, you know, fit into the acceptance mold of the Ashtanga practice. But if you come and you can't bind your hands because you're a bigger bodied student, it's kind of, you know, there, I remember one, once there was a friend of mine who had put on a little bit of weight and, you know, he was practicing with the teacher um, whose name I'm not going to mention, you know, but then the, the teacher was helping my friend try to bind in a twisting posture. And then this teacher said, oh, this is your chubby side. 
oh, chubby side. Oh, other yeah, side, also so, chubby. And it was just this fat yeah. that was going on. And it felt like, you know, that's not, this is, this is not appropriate. This is not really creating healthy space. This can be encouraging unhealthy relationships with food. This can be encouraging, you know, body shaming, body rejection, fat phobia, yeah. like all of the things that you know, it comes to yoga to heal from. But yeah, how, no, like, totally. how, can Ashtanga, how can Ashtanga yoga do that work? Like there's so many, there's so many, there's so many kind of, questions of, of, of bias, whether it's, you know, the body size bias, whether it's a bias towards a particular type of physical ableism, whether it's, you know, race and ethnicity bias, socioeconomic bias, what, what, what true, so, so this is something that I sit with that I'm questioning, like what truly is Ashtanga yoga? Is it the order of poses that's in primary series, second series, third series? Or is it something else? And I've kind of landed on that it's something else for me, which I remember when I first started practicing, I was super, like, I was like, you know, brainwashed and you have to do six days a week, exactly the order of poses. And it did, it healed me. And I'm really grateful for that. And anybody that's in that period, I don't want to take that away from anyone, go through it, work with it. But I'm in a place right now where I feel like it's okay if you only can practice five minutes a day. It's okay mm-hmm. if you never do all those crazy poses. And it's okay if you just take, you know, some subset of this practice that can heal your body and make your life more happy. That 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 works too. That's yoga too. And that that counts. Like that's valid. Okay. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. I'm glad you said that. And I'm I'm in agreement. And um one thing that I have absolutely um and I would encourage folks to do is uh, get more education on trauma, what trauma is, and how one might be able to teach in a more trauma-informed way. Because uh, and, and as we unpack, again, systemic oppression and harm and violence, the products of what ancestry, I mean, the, the, the events that happened before we were born, but that's still in our DNA, um, no matter whose ancestors you know, no matter your ancestry, we are all carrying trauma. Mm-hmm. What does trauma-informed yoga, yoga mean specifically, just for people who are listening? And like, what, like, what's an example of, 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 say, a terminology or way of teaching that would not be trauma-informed? And how does that then change when someone receives a trauma-informed teaching? Um, so from my understanding, the first question was, what is what was your first question? What is trauma-informed yoga and what's the difference between yoga that's not trauma-informed and yoga that is trauma-informed? Okay, well, yoga that's not trauma-informed is that teacher saying this is your chubby side, for one. That's right. extremely traumatic and harmful. Yeah. It's emotional violence, I'm going to say that. Um, and I mean, think about like if you were like a ballerina and you had had that like from ballet, you came to yoga to heal from that and you're getting that same harm replicated. So yeah, that's extremely violent to say that. Um, so trauma-informed is is where you take into account, again, the fact that we are all on some level experiencing trauma, um, personal or, and then of course, uh, societal, con- cultural, and institutional. And this is going to be very different for people depending on their social locations. It's not the same for like a black person comparing a, a white person in, in America or anywhere. Um, and so, from my understanding, and I'm still learning and educating myself on trauma informed yoga, we always want to present. Um, we we use the yoga as a way to um, give back the, the power of choice to the student. 
So trauma is by definition, you went through something and you didn't have a choice about it. So the, 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 the power, the agency, that's the word I'm looking for. Your agency was robbed of you. And so through the practice, and of course, trauma, things that live in the body, it's a somatic experience. So even if you feel like I've worked through it, like I've healed, I'm good. And all of a sudden you hear a loud sound, bang, and you react in a certain way. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That's trauma expressing itself, um, unresolved trauma expressing itself um, in the body. So we try to resolve this um, through yoga, through somatic practices. And so a trauma-informed yoga class, for example, would, 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 always present choice. So in a very invitational way. So not like take your arms up and that's it. It's like, you might wish to do this and you might wish to do that. So, Mm -hmm. and then the student can be like, Oh, actually I do wish to do this. And, and Mm -hmm. so it's always just these little cues, um, which provide the, the agency back to the student in a very kind of warm and compassionate way. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I'm kind of like working in my, um, you know, I'm, I, I specifically teach Ashtanga yoga for beginners. That's my passion. That's like where my strengths lie as a teacher. Um, so I, and I'm also taking a trauma-informed yoga um, online training at the moment, which is wonderful with Nitida Gesell. Um, it's great. Just, and so I, I, I and, and it's funny because like, <laughs> and then again, this goes back to like, is Ashtanga yoga fundamentally like kind of not how much choice is there in a, in a, in a strict guided class? Um, and it's interesting because actually there is not too much <laughs> choice. And I mean, again, and this is like, we, we need to build our, 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 we need to keep educating ourselves because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, Marichasna B, you take the pose or then you can do this one. And then there's already a value judgment, like mm-hmm. okay, you can do the pose, like the correct pose, or right. then do this. And that already something is something else. Yeah. It, yeah, it's the, a little bit something off. else element of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I, like when, when I find what, what I try to do when I'm teaching is, you know, I'll actually have taken some sort of a decision that I want to show the easiest version of the posture. Totally. So if there's something yeah. in the Marichasanas, I'll show not binding. And then I'll say something, if you're familiar with the pose and you want to bind you, this, like Absolutely. basically do it. Absolutely. But yep. as a teacher, I feel like I, you know, want to model what is the most accessible version of the posture. But Always. this is where I think that yeah. representation is so important is that even when I myself am modeling the easiest, what, what I believe is the easiest, most accessible version yeah. of the posture, there's still people who just because they're looking at me, don't believe yeah. that they can do it because I don't have, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a bigger bodied person. I don't mirror their size or shape or age or, you know, so, I, so this is, I think representation is so important. You can't just say, this is how you do it. You have to show somebody that the student can identify with directly. And then the student can say, oh, well, they're doing that. Okay. So I can do that too. Yeah, and this no, is it's just yeah. so important, you know, and, and in the, and in Ashtanga, in, in the thing that I find most challenging when we talk about inclusivity and accessibility is this hierarchical notion of master the pose and then you get the next one, you know, and then we have to, if we're going to take the hierarchy out, we have to redefine what mastery means because mm-hmm. there are some people that they're going to practice the rest of their life and their legs are never going behind their head. Then they're going to improve the hip flexibility for sure. Definitely. I mean, you know, of course some miracle can happen. Yes. You know, but there are some people you can see, okay, someone is 80 years old. They start practicing, you know, maybe there are some poses that, you know, depending on the person, the personal's past history that we, they shouldn't be striving for. Cause again, the, yeah. the inner work, the practice is not in these 
physical form. So, okay, so here's a, so, so what is the practice as presented to that person, you know, mm-hmm. and I, like a teaching my mom who's in her seventies and has two total knee replacements was a huge eye opener for me mm-hmm. because this was really clear for me. Like there's no amount of stretching that's ever mm-hmm. going to allow her to bend her knees more than 90 degrees, just period, end of story. Yeah. So how mm-hmm. is it that this practice can be made accessible for her? Mm-hmm. And what are the elements that are appropriate for her to do? So mm-hmm. teaching her helped help really open my mind. And I, I feel yeah. like as, as a whole, I know that's where I'm sitting. And that's kind of what I'm into in the yoga world right now is, is you know, taking, taking the elements that are most healing from the practice, removing those which are most restrictive and oppressive and have been tied to these systems of violence and then, and then sort of preserving what, what I see as the heart of the healing methodology of the practice. But this mm-hmm. is a bigger conversation. Do you think it's possible to do this like in this kind of you know, diffuse way where, you know, I'm over here doing this work and you're where you are doing this work, but there's no kind of like system structure sort of saying this is the new structure. And, you know, this sort of, it's sort of, um, decentralized. And hmm. does, does it, does it work? Does Ashtanga yoga survive as a system with this decentralization of kind of innovation and change? Or is there something new that we just don't know yet? That's kind of being born in the hearts and minds of practitioners now. Um, well, <laughs> being a person with a lot of privilege, more privilege than not, but also being a person who identify, who walks in this world with a lived experience of marginalization and being, um, you know, not walking in all this privilege, um, I am actually not worried or feel like there needs to be a center at all so the decentralization aspect of it is like great you know <laughs> like for me like that's that's totally fine like it's not it's not a problem and it's exciting to see um people being innovative and creative in all pockets of the world and then of course we have this amazing like engine of of the internet where the exchange of ideas and this cross pollination can happen so like um and if we're talking about wanting to like move away from systems of oppression like yeah let's decentralize it you know like let's yes this is absolutely uh i think a healthy a healthy place to be and um which is why the internet has just and social media is so powerful because like anyone who has access to internet and a phone can write and voice their opinion and it can go out to the world. This is extremely exciting. Um, And I hope and think and feel that uh, we're birthing something that could be a bit more healing and um, certainly less traumatizing and harmful for uh, all of us. So I don't see like decentralization as a, as a problem at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I hear you. I really, really hear you on that. I think that the, this is a, the, as speaking of, you know, cognitive dissonance, I feel that the decentralization of authority in Ashtanga makes, make, might make many students feel with a kind of a cognitive dissonance because, you know, one teacher says one thing, another teacher says another thing, and then the messages that are coming from here. So, so people sit, sit the, the students are sitting at this intersection of, you know, needing to sort it out for themselves. So what, 
what role do you think the students play in kind of decolonizing Ashtanga yoga if, and, 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 and birthing kind of the next iteration of this movement of practice? I mean, I think we then need to a little bit break down and unpack what the role of teacher is and what the role of student is in this kind of non-hierarchical, brave new world that we're birthing together, we're co-creating together. Um, And this is one thing that I see in this kind of like the hierarchy of Ashtanga yoga is that the student empowerment has really like, that, that it's not present. And so then it's this need of, well, this teacher said that and that teacher said that and oh my goodness, what is correct? And so this is why, again, I want to go back to the importance of thinking like, how can I teach Ashtanga yoga in a more trauma-informed way, in a way Mm -hmm. that brings student empowerment back, that brings agency back into the student? Okay, this is what I would really love to see. And so what, Mm -hmm. how might it look different? Like, okay, yes, people come to a room to be with a person and this person is responsible for holding the space, but we absolutely need to, to, to recreate and rethink what the role of teacher is and what the role of student is. And can we be a community where we are co-creating together and we might have mm-hmm. different experiences? Certainly somebody who has like, yeah, I mean, let's kind of co-create together what it means to be teachers and students. And um I very much um I'm, I'm, I'm just and and here's the thing is like if if a, if, a, if a group of people are going to a person because they want something I mean that already like the power dynamic is never going to be like this like we're mm-hmm. never going to be just like a community of folks just like there's different roles that um a teacher is going to play in a group of folks together so how can we do this practice in a way that that kind of just maintains folks's agency and um, mm-hmm. kind of fosters um, the trust that there is that inner teacher within that that knows and, and, and kind of is re-remembering. Like, how can we work on that level, that more collective level, where we don't need to have power over anybody? Mm-hmm. How can we teach or guide in a way that fosters power within the individual? And how can we then... Um, be in community where we have power together. Right. Yeah. And for none of, I don't think for very few of us, we, we, we've never been in community where it's not top down, where the power over has not been the overriding aspect. Because again, look at the systems in which we live in. So this is something new. Power within, which the Ashtanga Yoga provides, and then this power together, mm-hmm. where I'm not trying to dominate you and you're not trying to dominate me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, really love that. And I feel that this is a, a, a system that people don't have experience with and is something that will have to be experimented with. And, you know, I think that there are, there needs to be a change in, as you said, what is the role of a teacher? Because I feel like sometimes in the yoga world, the teachers, people who are put in roles of teachers, they are attracted to the power. They're attracted to you know, that idea of being like a mini guru or something like that. And, you know, I mean, I speak for myself, I'll put myself there. You know, there was a point in my life where I really, really liked the, you know, the adoration and the, you know, the, the sense of the sense of that someone else thought that I had the answer. And now I, 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 there's been a huge change in me personally over the last couple of years where I started to really feel like I don't, like I, that's not my role. Like I'm not, 
here to tell you what to do. If anything, I feel like, okay, so what can I do? I can provide a space where the student can practice, but but it's so important for me that the students know that it's their practice, that it's not, that they need to practice without me there, that I may facilitate or inspire them to practice, but it has to be their practice. Before I think I would would go up and say, you know, do dropbacks today. And then now I'm like, do you want to do backbends today? How's it going for you? Do you want, if you don't want to, we don't have to Mm -hmm. do, but then if you want to, okay, we can try, you know, and how does it like getting that constant feedback, I think creates this human to human contact rather than this, you know, this hierarchical relationship where the teacher's placed on this pedestal, because the, the sort of flip side of that is human beings. We're yoga teachers, you know, and the place on this high pedestal, there's nowhere to go but down. No. So to start off with this human to human contact, then it's like, well, we're all down. Yeah. So if we're good. So if I make a mistake, then I'm human already. And you also can make a mistake and we can learn together. And that, yeah. that's a difficult space to be in because what is, what does authority look like that? You know, what mm-hmm. is, because there is this, uh, and one of the things that I, I can't remember who I was speaking to, but one of the ways that I'm, that I'm, un, that I start to understand the type of authority that is kind of like non-harming is this is not absolute authority which is this sort of destructive authority which removes agency but deferential authority where mm-hmm. you know you have the example of um you know checking on your gps before you drive someplace and if you you know in the u.s we use ways a lot people use ways a lot to get i don't, I don't you also have ways in finland so ways. <laughs> okay good. i, you know, I want to make the assumption right so Ways for anybody who doesn't have it in their country that's listening is this really cool app that 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 you know basically calculates the, the fastest way based on current traffic positions. And I don't know about you, but every time I use Ways, it takes me through some neighborhood that I've never been to before. Okay. And, you know, at first I'm like, I'm not. I, yeah, first time, first couple of times I tried it, I was like, no, no, no. I'm, I know, I know my city. I'm born and raised here. Yeah. I'm gonna go the way I know. And then there was a huge traffic jam. And then, then I learned, let me, let me actually just see how it goes with Waze. And then mm-hmm. I found that Waze took me around a traffic jam. So I learned to trust the app. Does not mean mm-hmm. I'm always going to trust the app? No, I'm still going to keep my own agency. It's my choice whether I want to follow it. But I've learned to have deferential authority. I've learned through empirical evidence. Look, when I do that, it gets me faster. It's based on good results. It's empirical. It's not blind. It's not yeah. harming. It's only benefiting everyone. Okay, so then I continue to follow it. So that I feel is, like what needs to happen. Students, particularly these students who are who have experienced trauma, don't understand deferential authority. They understand absolute authority because that sense of agency has been removed. And it's this, it's like this weird, you know, um, potentially harmful cycle where you lost your agency. So you recreate that loss of agency and it yep. strangely makes you feel safe. But what you actually need is someone that will restore your agency and sort of ask you, you know, does this feel good for you? Does this feel right for you? Like, tell me yes or no in this moment. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's almost like we need a, a radically reformed, you know, teacher training, whether that's trauma-informed training or, or what in the Ashtanga method, but I think in all yoga methods, but particularly Ashtanga, I think it's necessary. I agree. And yeah, like if trauma is what you've known, then it's going to feel safe. And I remember overhearing, like we came out like, you know, in Goa um, before COVID kind of shut down the world. Um, We were talking about this new way of teaching where there was not much hierarchy. And I overheard some students saying, no, like life is already so uncertain. I just want like one person to tell me do this and that's it. And I was like, oh, wow, like that, that, that is like the safe feeling. Um, but it's, I 
think that's short lived and one and one and, and it is going to take time to kind of like make this normalized where it's like ooh like hmm I do have a choice and what do I want to do today because uh, for folks who just kind of want that like it's this way or that way then being more trauma informed kind of feels undecisive or wishy washy and like not mm-hmm. strong enough but that is like um, a projection of trauma speaking like mm-hmm. no I need be so super structured that that in itself you can you can kind of and that goes back to education and childhood and the ways in which folks were um traumatized into systems um and one thing i do want to talk about authority um it's going to look different like for folks who are used to having the authority and you are who are used to taking up space in the world in society it might look like oh my god i'm losing power and i'm losing authority and oh my god who am i without this big authority thing and for folks who have been more walking in marginalized identities taking up more positions of authority um is also going to be a new a new thing and um something that we certainly haven't been conditioned to do so i just kind of want to speak to that mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. going to be depending on your social locations and the messages you received about power and occupying uh positions of expertise um that that's going to be real different depending mm-hmm. on 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 what identities you move through and yeah i uh, think that we can go back to that analogy that you used at the very beginning of our conversation about how you know in in finland for those first couple of years you felt like you were at this you know permanent cocktail party so there are people and members of the dominant group who've never given like never given second thoughts to oh well how did how did what i say affect this person and they may feel like oh i'm walking on eggshells now and and they feel like well i don't like this well it's like oh well, that's okay for a little while because you know it's not only in the yoga world it's like we've got to take that out into the the the, the real world and real conversations so if you think for a moment well how is how is what i say impacting this person and rather than just take for granted that how i think is how they think so then this not to create distance but it's to actually create true connection true consciousness yeah and so that yeah. that dis- that discomfort i think is 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 a challenge for 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 you know for all all members of society based on their social social locations but maybe most uncomfortable for members of the dominant group they may you know well, have the most who, res- have, who have who have come to like be entitled to comfort at all times who have been mm-hmm. yeah or just walking through without a second thought it's going to be like mad uncomfortable for y'all but just so you all know like we have been needing to navigate these um unspoken social currents all our lives so like mm-hmm. Oh well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the a really a really common example that's often that's often given to particular to 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 kind of explain, you know, how it goes is is the gender, the you know the 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 the, the framing the framing an analogy in terms of gender. You know, if a woman mm-hmm. of any color yep. were to walk into a space full of men, there are certain ways that 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 as a woman, you will change your behavior a little bit, you know, for, for in whichever, whichever way. And then if a man walks into a room full of women, then, it, you know, if, if he is then asked to think about the impact of what he's saying on the, you know, I'm not saying that men are completely unconscious, but having that understanding of, oh, if you were part of the dominant group, there are certain things that you'll never think about. So for example, most, most women, if you put a single woman in a room with more than five men there's a thought of physical safety and physical harm that comes up Absolutely. for women and mm-hmm. this is something that 
you know, men, a very especially men that fall in that, you know, heteronormative category, don't think about if they're a single man in a room with five women, the thought is not, I'm here for my physical safety, where's the nearest yeah. exit? Their thought is yeah. more more likely one of safety and one still of dominance. Mm-hmm. So this is to, to frame it in that understanding, I think can help particularly people that identify as members of, you know, uh, that uh, particularly dominant groups in society, if they identify as white and and say, well, you know, I don't want to think about that this person that I'm white and this person is black, I'm white and this person is brown. I just want to exist. I just don't want to think about that. Well, it's like, no, so in, in that same way that we're gonna ask that man who steps into a female space, you know, or the you know, the heterosexual man stepping into a, you know, female space, then then that's gonna be the, the, the same kind of, you know, just the same kind of ask. So I think framing it in that dialogue is when people can scratch their head and go, oh, okay, I understand. So I'm now asked to be uncomfortable so that other people cannot be harmed. That's okay. Right. My yep. discomfort is worth that, you know? And if yeah. you're a spiritual practitioner, if you're a yoga practitioner, you have to say yes to that. You have to acknowledge that. Otherwise, why are we practicing? And here's the thing, like we get uncomfortable anytime we bind in Marichasna D. So all yeah. of a sudden it's like, oh no, I can't do that. Like it's, it's right. no, we, we are training ourselves to be able to like squeeze and, and like <laughs> morph. And so, I mean, the Ashtanga yoga is such a perfect like vehicle because that's what we do in the morning. We're not just going to like hang out yeah. and relax and lounge. Like we're, we're going to do some like un- unpacking of karma. So please look at your karma as a, as a white woman and um, as a, any, any person um, and, and just see like how, just be aware of like, how is it that you move through spaces? It's going to be different. And um, what was it I, I had to say? Uh, I lost the train of thought again. So yes. Yeah. The, the gender. Uh, yeah. That's a, oh yes. And the fact that you can occupy both positions of dominance and positions of marginalization as is the example of white woman um, mm-hmm. nest, right? Your whiteness is dominant group. That's the privilege side of things. And then the gender is also where you might experience marginalization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but for black women, we don't have that. We are um, marginalized on both race and gender. So this is why we, when we talk about feminism, we can't just be talking about feminism. We also need to keep it intersectional and the ways in which um, it's not just like, yeah. So that's a whole other topic for another day, but I just need to speak to that because, um, so it's totally, uh, and you know, I'm I'm constantly thinking like, what are the things that I internalized being light-skinned and and mixed race and how, how was my, um, experience um, lauded and given space in ways that dark-skinned Black women haven't had. And so I'm doing a lot of education on myself, not going and asking like <laughs> dark-skinned women, explain this to me. It's like, no, I need to educate myself and see how I might um, replicate these systems of, 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 of violence on, on, on folks that are, are more darker skin than I am and realizing that they are having much different experiences and go through things that I, I don't have to think about. Mm. What would you recommend for people who are listening, whether they're students of yoga or teachers of yoga, what is the work that people can do to put in that work themselves 
to educate themselves, to decolonize their own yoga practice, and mm-hmm. to kind of be on the forefront of creating this non-hierarchical yoga world that, you know, many, many people want. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, now, and it's just so interesting to see how, of course, with Me Too, when it came out, that has become a global movement. Black Lives Matter now has become a global movement. Um, So I would say that the bigger, like this is happening on a macro level. And so it's kind of almost not facilitated, but there's an energy and a momentum that, of course, is um, informing itself in the yoga world. I mean, you know, we are in the age of information. So (laughs) I think like if you're not engaged in the conversation, then you're making a conscious choice to remain (laughs) racist Mm -hmm. and to remain moving in your privilege. And um, okay. Um, So, I mean, just think, who do you read? Whose lens are you learning yoga and spiritual practice from? And how might you decolonize your bookshelf? Um, Who do you support? How, and, and I think we also need to like, just get over like the fact that like, oh, I'm not a political person. Well, even making that statement, there's politics behind that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. even if like you are protected and the structures of society protect you where you don't have to think about this immigration act or this reform bill, I really think it is an expression of love and your spiritual practice that you are actually engaging in in politics in a real way. Like you are taking, you are making an effort to call Congress and say, hey, I, this is this is what, and the information is there. Like things are really like facilitated for us with the internet and just all the education you can get for free on Instagram. And so it's just, just be, pay attention um, and take your yoga practice. Definitely do the, the, the asana and the pranayama and the meditation, do the stuff on the mat as, as much as you can, as your, your life um, situation can offer you. And then also go do stuff out in the world because who is it? Cornell West says, you know, never forget that um, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm-hmm. And we live I love in that quote. It's, it's such wonderful. A, it's a wonderful quote, and it's such an it's such a like this is a time of intensity. It's a time of, of course, overwhelm and exhaustion. So please, like, this is not a marathon. This is not a, a sprint. A it's sprint, a marathon. It's a marathon. Yeah. So do what you need to do to be well. Take your time to rest and just recuperate. Do not burn yourself out. And just keep returning. Keep returning into the conversations. Keep doing like just day-to-day things that keep you involved and engaged in the conversation. And, you know, we're going to, this is like history in the making. So think like who, you know, that thing like, oh, what would you have done if, if you lived like during Nazi Germany or in the Holocaust? Like mm-hmm. we're living in Holocausts now. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing? <laughs> are you yeah. just like, oh, okay, well, too bad for everybody else, but I'm just going to be here and take care of my own like little bubble here and just be grateful for my immediate circumstances that my social like middle-class social um, privilege can afford me, or I'm actually extending and like doing something that might be of, of, of collective benefit. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. And I think that's a really good call for everyone here and a wonderful place for us to turn the conversation over to all the students and listeners and teachers of yoga. So Bambui, thank you so much for this really enlightening, heartfelt conversation. It's been such an honor to share the space with you. Thank you, Kino. I appreciate you. And yeah, I feel like we could go for like on and on. So, <laughs> <laughs> so to be continued, we'll have another conversation again soon. No. And uh, Oh my God, was it really an hour and a half? Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm pretty passionate about this stuff. And um, I'm just really like happy that you reached out. And um, thank you for, um, yeah, sharing your, your platform and um more more of this more of this definitely i look forward to that definitely hey there it's kino here i just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me if you're enjoying this podcast series you can find the full-length videos on my online channel omstars and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.